Today's message has been brought to you by Faith Family Church in Billings, Montana. For more information, visit faithfamilybillings.com. You know that over the last 20 years, I have spent a lot of time teaching on spiritual growth, spiritual development. Um, The basis of what I have found concerning that subject has to do with the issue of a spiritually mature person allows his Bible-formed beliefs to govern what he thinks, what he says, and what he does. I'm going to say that again. Here again, if you know anything about me at all, followed my, followed my ministry at all, you know this is a strong issue in me that that as spiritually mature individuals, we allow our Bible-formed beliefs to govern what we think, to govern what we say, govern what we do. And if, you're not, if we're not doing that, then we're allowing our flesh to govern our thoughts, our words, and our actions. And the issue of think, say, do is a huge issue. But uh, over the last year, the Lord has arrested me about this subject. I never will forget, Brother Hagin would teach uh, and say these things. Spiritual things are a lot like natural things. Spiritual things are a lot like natural things. And um, there's many examples that we could go over into concerning that that particular statement, but it's true. Spiritual things are a lot like natural things. And the Lord arrested me because you can be an individual that is in control of your thoughts, your words, your actions by your Bible-formed beliefs and still live a life that is not concerned about the welfare of others. True maturity kind of peaks out with being concerned about the welfare of others. We've seen individuals that completely mess up their, their natural lives and their families because they're all, they're all about themselves. Even in elderly ages, you'll see that a lot of times. But the thing about it is, is there has to come a time and a point if we're going to grow up. How many of you know we need to have children? That means we're going to need to share our faith every once in a while. Okay, don't like that. And, um, and be concerned about the welfare of others. And be, and be actually available to um, sense the needs of others and actually kind of step into their lives and give them aid and assistance. You know, the Bible talks about in Ephesians, you don't need to turn here, you know these verses. Pastors talked about these things much. There's a prayer in Ephesians chapter 3 that Paul prayed. And listen to his words here in Ephesians chapter 3. And I want to begin reading with verse 14. Paul says these words, for this cause, Ephesians 3 and verse 14, for this cause, I'll bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And you know that rest of that prayer. I'm sure you do. When I'm sitting there, the Lord said to me, it's time for the family on earth to get engaged, to be engaged in the things of the Lord. Here again, you can be in the family of God for, you know, decades and never really engage in community life, in the family life. I found it very interesting. Go with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 5. We had you turn there at first. Hebrews chapter 5. And uh, Paul, in verse 12, gives what I call a little bit of a uh, uh, encouragement um, for family responsibility. 
within every family, there are responsibilities that we have. And you just can't live in the family and just soak up all the blessings for yourself and never, uh, if you will, rub shoulders with others. And, and listen to what he says here. This is one of the first family responsibilities I think we're given. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 12, he says these words, for when for the time you ought to be teachers, he said, I know you well enough. I've been around you long enough to where I know that you ought to be passing on what you know to others. You know, that's what a teacher does. Now, we know, we've been taught, pastors taught us well, that in Ephesians, it talks about, and God gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. We know that there are some among us that are called to be a teacher, especially anointed by God to flow in that office, to function in that office, just like he's called some people to be in the office of an evangelist or some people to be in the office of a pastor. But he's called some to be in the office of a teacher, especially anointed. But here in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 12, he's not talking about those, those ministry gifts that are specially anointed to teach. He's talking to the average believer. He's talking to the believer in the, in the pew. And he says that every single one of us should grow to the place to where we ought to be able to pass on what we know to others. I, 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 I have, I have uh, you know, students all the time. Well, you know, I don't know too much. Well, you do know some things. And if you know some things, you ought to at least step up and at least be willing to share what you know with others. Look at what it says here. For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God and are become such as have need of milk and not strong meat. I believe very strongly that every single one of us in this room ought to grow to the place to where we ought to be able to pass on the ABCs of Christianity to others. I think, I think, this is my own personal opinion now, but I think that there should be some subjects within the body of Christ that are so understood by all of us that it doesn't take a pastor to explain. I think, this is just me now, I think every one of us should be able to take a new convert and, and put him across our kitchen table and teach him how to walk in love. Because that's the milk of the word. That's the ABCs of, of Christianity. Because I think, I think we ought to be able to pull in a new convert and teach them how to live by faith. That to me is milk of the word stuff, easy stuff, stuff that we're all familiar with. I think we ought to be able to teach them a little bit about worship and how to glorify God and magnify God. But here again, if we know some things and we're holding some things back, well then are we really showing our maturity? And so the thing about it is, it's very clear here that this is one of the family responsibilities that we've been given. Got to have an amen. Then go with me, if you will, to Galatians chapter 6. Here's another family responsibility that has been given to us. Now, this one's a little bit more troublesome, probably, than the first one. Galatians chapter 6. This, once again, is speaking to believers. It's not talking to the leadership of the church of Galatia. It's talking to believers. Paul says these words in chapter 6. Now, in chapter 5, in verses 19, 20, and 21, he talks about the works of the flesh. And we've all heard sermons about the works of the flesh, adultery, fornication, and on down through the list. But I want you to notice here that Paul ends this whole discourse with verse, verse 1 of chapter 6. And listen to what he says here. He says, brethren, talking to believers now, not to the church leaders. Brethren, if any man be overtaken in a fault... He said, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. In the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. He's talking about, look, look at verse 2. Bear ye one another's burdens. He's actually talking to us who sit in the pew, and he says, if you find an individual overtaken in a fornication, adultery, or some of these other things spoken of here in, in, in Galatians 5, he said, you're supposed to step into their lives and help bring them restoration. Instead of taking them to the pastor, it's not the pastor's duty, it's the family duty. That, because to be honest with you about it, you're going to come into contact with the fallen saints quicker than he will. He'll be the last one they seek out. But you're their friends. You're their acquaintances. They're the people that they run around with. And all of a sudden, or during coffee, they're going to share with you 
certain things that have happened in their lives that they're ashamed of, and you were to step into their lives and help bring restoration and restore them. You know, in reality, to be honest with you about it, I wish we could talk about it, we don't have time, but in reality, you're taking a flesh-governed person and moving them back over into a belief-governed person. Stepping them up in their beliefs. This is what you believe, is that right? Well, yeah, well, let's start living like it. Instead of, instead of living by your flesh, just doing what you feel. And so here again, these are family responsibilities, and I think the church needs to get engaged in some of these things because we're encountering these people on a regular basis people that are having difficulty maintaining the course, well, we want to get involved, but so many turn their head. So, so many just turn, no, 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 I can't. There's amazing, you may not know exactly all that pastor would say to that individual who's fallen, but you've got a heart that loves them, and, and your heart that loves them can touch them in a way that his wisdom can't. There's something about somebody who actually cares about you, loves you, enough to go ahead and step into their lives. Then this one is an interesting one. The third family responsibility that I think that we have as believers is Acts chapter 20. This is an interesting one. We could spend quite a bit of time on this one. Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Now this is on Paul's third missionary journey. Paul has left Ephesus and he went down to a city by the name of Miletus. He's actually headed to Jerusalem. And he's got this offering that he's collected from, the, from, from all the people in the third missionary journey for the poor Jewish saints at Jerusalem. He's going to give them this offering. And he's kind, of, he's kind of got a mandate on his life to get him this offering. But the entire time of this third missionary journey, he's getting, he's getting words from the Holy Ghost that tells him that there's going to be difficulty in Jerusalem once you get there. And Paul actually had come to the conclusion that his life may end in Jerusalem. He, he thought this may be it. But, but I'm bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, and I'm not going to divert my, 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 my course. And so, um, so he, he's found himself in Miletus, just a little bit north of Jerusalem. And he's getting to think about the Ephesian leaders that are just up the road that he just left. And he's got a, quite a relationship with them. He's, he actually has, the Ephesians is where he stayed the longest within his missionary journeys. He stayed three years. On his second missionary journey, he knows these people, loves these people, got a relationship with them, and he gets to thinking about them. And he's starting to think that I may never see them ever again. I may never see them ever again. And so what he did was he called for the leaders of the church at Ephesus and brought them down to Miletus. And he's going to speak into their lives with this attitude, I may never see you again. Well, I don't know about you, but if I thought that this was the last time that I would ever see you, don't you know we'd be talking about the most important things, the most serious things? You know, I, I thought about it a lot, that when that time comes, I trust that I'll be alert enough to know when it's coming. I'm going to pull my wife into the house. I'm going to pull my children in the house, my grandbabies. I'm going to pull in their husbands and their wives and I'm going to pour into their life what they need to know in order for them to carry on after I'm gone. Paul's with this attitude. He's speaking to the Ephesian leaders. And listen to what he tells them to do. He says, he says in chapter 20, and I want to begin reading, if you will, with verse 22. And now behold, I go bound in the spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, except that the Holy Ghost witnesses in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry which I have received of the Lord to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 25, and now, behold, I know that you all. Now, Paul believes he's never going to see them again. Now, he's wrong. He will see them after he's been released from his first Roman imprisonment, but he's wrong. But he's got this attitude that he's not going to ever see them again. So he, with, that, with that attitude, he's, he's speaking into their lives. And listen to what he says here. Verse 25, And now behold, I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. Wherefore, I take you into record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you, underline it, all 
counsel of God. All the counsel of God. And then he says these words, much to be said about this, but I better hold back here. Verse 28. Now I want you to pay attention, therefore, unto the flock and unto yourselves. Take heed, therefore, pay attention, therefore, unto yourselves. And pay attention to the flock over the which the Holy Ghost has made you an overseer. Underline it. To feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Teach them. Feed them. Pass on to them the counsel that I passed on to you. You pass it on to them. And you preach the whole counsel of God, not just your favorite subjects. Can I have an amen? amen. Verse 29. Why does he tell them to, to pass on this whole counsel to the flock? Because I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves, underline it, enter in. Underline that phrase, enter in. And among you, not sparing the flock, and also of your own selves shall men, underline it, arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after the, What he's talking about, guys, is this, is that I know that after I leave, false teachers are going to come from without, and false teachers are going to arise from within. Are you listening to me? And what he's saying is simply this. You can never stop false teachings from coming. You cannot stop them from coming from without, from teachers that are not in your camp, and neither can you, can you stop false teachers from arising from within your camp. Now, you know as well as I do that when we encounter someone that we're used to, that we kind of all lay our guards down while they're speaking. But if you've got somebody standing before you that you have never heard before, you're going to have your guard up. You're going to have your defenses up because you don't know exactly where this guy's coming from. You've never been around him at all. And if you're not real careful, what happens is, is you can be as easily deceived by people that you know. Are oh, you listening to me? And he said, you, you, you feed them the word of God. You teach them the word of God. Because the only help you can give people to, to, um, to uh, uh, fort, if you will, these things is to teach them the truth ahead of time so that, they win, so that when they hear untruths, whether it come from people from without or people from within, when they hear the, tr the untruths, that, 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 as people stand before them, they can recognize it for themselves and disregard it. Okay, don't like that. The majority of us, when we encounter a new teacher and they say something that we don't know is right, if you're not real careful, the first thing you'll do is you'll look at the back of this guy's head right here. <laughs> and if this, this guy does one little, then you come to the conclusion that what that guy just said was wrong. But if he does this, then okay, I guess that's okay to... I, uh, come on now, come on people now. Smile on your brother, you know I'm right. How many of you have ever looked at pastor's response from a statement made from the podium? Come on, tell me the truth. Thank you very much. Yeah, he shook his head. Well, that solves, the, that's the issue, you know. But the thing about it is, is this, Paul is telling the leaders of the church of Ephesus you teach your people so well that they know the truth for themselves so they don't have to look at the back of the... Because the back of the head may not be in the room when you hear the false idea, and you need to be able to identify it yourself. Are you listening to me? You need to know the truth for yourself. And so the thing about it is, is in today's society, there are many voices... There are so many things that are speaking into our lives, and we need to be able to identify truth from untruth. But here again, here again, if we just rely upon him, well, then we got a problem on our hands. Now, you're listening to me. 
This world is increasing in false ideas, in untruths. And we need to understand where we sit in the midst of all of these things. I want to talk to you tonight about the mind. Pastors ask me to go this direction. We're going to go this direction. I want you to go with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. So here we go. I'm going to just cut to the quick. You guys, I'm sure, have had a, had a long day today. And so let's just cut to the quick of this, and let's move along quickly, and we'll, we'll move on, and we'll finish it out tomorrow. Ephesians chapter 6. I want to begin reading with verse... With verse 10, Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6, in verse 10, Paul says these words, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, and put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world and against spiritual wickedness in high places, wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, stand. Therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer. I want you to notice, first of all, in verse 11, he says these words, put on the, underline it, the whole armor of God. Underline that phrase. Put on the whole armor of God. Look at verse 13. Wherefore, Take unto you the, underline it, the whole armor of God. What that tells me is this, guys, is that we must never drift over to the thinking that just one piece of this armor can win all the battles that we are going to encounter. You must not be a specialist in just one of these pieces of armor. You are to take unto yourself the whole armor of God. And so many of us, when we hear these, these truths about righteousness and about the gospel of peace and about faith and about salvation and about all these things, well, then we drift over to our favorite subjects and we forget that Paul's encouraging us that if you're going to win the battles that he's talking about, you're going to have to take into yourself the whole, it's not just one piece that has become your favorite little to-go-to tool. Are you listening to me? Now, the question that we've got to ask is simply this, is what kind of battles are going to be lost if we don't do this? And the way that you can discover that is to just look at humanity. Look at the people around you. And you can see where the effects that this battle has had upon people who have lost this battle. Depression is a big indication that there was a battle fought and they lost. Low self-esteem, battle fought, they lost. I wrote these down, fear, hopelessness, weary and worry. All of these things are just evidence that a battle has been fought, they've lost, and now they're in just gulfed in worry, if you will. Unforgiveness. Adultery and fornication also is evidence that this battle has been lost. False doctrine embraced. Teenagers rebel. Mm, husbands and wives separate. Employees lose their job. Embezzlement occurs. And on, and on the list. Now, I want you to notice here that in Ephesians chapter 6, verses, verses, um, verses 14, 15, 16, he's talking about this armor. And listen to what he says here once again. 
He says in verse 14, he says, Stand therefore, having your loins girded about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, uh, the shield of faith, the quenching the fiery darts of the wicked, taking the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. And I've heard sermon after sermon after sermon trying to describe how that each piece of armor protects a certain part of our life. And I've always had a problem with that teaching. I want you to go with me, if you will. Hold your finger here in Ephesians. Go with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This has always bothered me. Because the same person, Paul, who wrote Ephesians, is the same person who wrote, who wrote 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8. Paul said in Ephesians, taking upon yourself the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith. But look what Paul says here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 8. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith. Wait, wait. I thought it was the shield of faith, Paul. I thought it was the breastplate of righteousness, Paul. You confused? What's up here? He did get it right. Helmet, the hope of salvation. He did get that one right. So, so when I saw that, I thought to myself, isn't it interesting that even Paul himself was not loyal to his, to his, his armament placement? The assignment as to what was assigned to the breastplate and what was assigned to this, what was assigned to that. He wasn't loyal to that. So I went back to Ephesians chapter 6. And what I want to do is, if Paul was not loyal to it, then I'm not going to be loyal to it. In fact, what I'm going to do is, I'm going to remove all of the armor terminology out of this, out of this passage. And I want to show you what the true armor really is. Because, I, first of all, let me just say this. The reason why I believe that he's using the armor scenario is because he's talking about a battle that will whip your little mm <laughs> if you don't have this armor on. You will be as injured as a buck-naked soldier if you don't have this armor on. So, so he's talking about a real, a, real, a real battle that's going to cause some real hurt, some real damage in your life if you don't put this armor on. And so listen to what he says here. So let's take out, but with, but with that said, let's take out these pieces of armor and just find out what the real armor of God is. Here we go. Verse 13. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Stand therefore with, underline it, with truth. Circle the word truth. And have righteousness. Circle righteousness. And, underline it, the gospel of peace. And take faith. Verse 17, and take salvation. And lastly, take the word of God. I present this for your consideration. The armor that Paul speaks of here is truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, the word of God. You know what's always bothered me with this scripture? If each if each piece of armor protects a certain part of our, 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 our being, I don't know, maybe Pastor has the answer to this, maybe Brother Scott has the answer, maybe Heidi has the answer, somebody else in this room has the answer to this. I never could figure out why verse 14 said, stand therefore having the learns go about with truth. And then he says in verse 17, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. What's the difference between the word of God and truth? So, so when I see that, what I, what I really hear Paul saying is this, is that knowledge is your armor. Knowledge, it's what you know about truth. It's what you know about gospel of peace. It's what you know about salvation. It's what you know about righteousness. It's what you know about the word of God. It's what you know about faith. And the Lord said this to me, knowledge 
and its proper use is the key to victory. Write that down. Knowledge and its proper use is the key to victory. Paul's saying you've got to know some things. If you're going to win this battle that Paul is speaking of, you've got to know some things. And you've got to know some things about the truth, righteousness, and gospel of peace, faith, salvation, the word of God. You've got to have knowledge. You're going to have to know some things. And, and then, then I saw this a long time ago. Ignorance and victory are impossible roommates. You can't have victory and be ignorant. In fact, I want you to go with me, if you will, to two passages very quickly. Y'all doing okay today? Hosea chapter 4. Turn, with, turn there with me, if you will. Hosea. Hosea. Oh, Lord, help me find Hosea before they do. It's right after Daniel. It's right after Daniel. Hosea chapter 4. Hosea 4. No, if we're going to win this battle, it's going to have to be with knowledge. With knowledge. No wonder Paul told the Ephesian leaders, feed the flock of God which is among you. Teach them. Isn't it true that the number one responsibility of pastors is to feed the flock? It's to feed the flock. Not to bless the flock. Hello. Feed them. Because why? Knowledge and its proper use wins victory. Listen to what it says here in Hosea chapter 4 and verse 6. Here's some, here's some combat terminology. Hosea 4, 6. For my people are, underlined it, destroyed for a lack of knowledge. I don't know about you. That would destroy speaks of the effects of a lost battle. You're destroyed. And you're destroyed because of the lack of knowledge. Y'all doing okay today? Then go with me if you will to Isaiah 5. Isaiah chapter 5. Knowledge in its proper use is the key to victory. Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah 5. Oh, I love this verse. Isaiah 5 and verse 13. He says these words. Isaiah 5. You still hear pages turning? That's a good thing. You know, I go to a lot of churches. You don't even hear Bibles anymore. You'd be surprised. I'm, 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 I'm thankful for, I see a lot of Bibles. I see people taking notes in this church, and I haven't seen that in a long time. You're to be, oh, you're, you're high, high and lifted up, you know. I bow before you. It's amazing. I'm not even going to go there. Isaiah 5 and verse 13. God says these words. Therefore, my people are gone into, underline it, captivity. That speaks of a war. That speaks of a battle that they have been lost. Therefore, my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. How many of you ever remember this verse? And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. That word freedom is also connected to a battle effect, but it sets us free. It releases us. But he says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. My people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. Knowledge in its proper use. When, go with me if you go to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy 1. Love this when I first saw this. We take knowledge and we use it properly. I, uh, I, I, I do a lot of teaching on healing. And um, I talk about the reasons why people fail to receive healing. And, and I talk about unbelief is a reason. I talk about dysfunctional relationships are a reason. How many of you know, guys, you just can't treat people any way you want to treat people and expect to be blessed by God? Amen? You've got to walk in love toward people. Be kind. Anyway, dysfunctional relationships, unbelief, because I talk about ignorance, how that that's the reason why some people are not healed is because they just don't know. But the fourth reason that I bring up is this, failure to use what you know properly. There's a lot of people that have been taught the Word of God, and they're just not using it properly. Are you all out there? Oh, they, they know. 
They'll agree with it. Oh, yeah, Pastor, yeah, I agree with that. But are they using it properly? Knowledge must be used properly. We'll talk about it. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. Knowledge and its proper use. Listen to what it says here. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee. Evidently, he had received some, not just one prophecy, but a, but a, but a few. This charge I committed to thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went out before upon thee, that thou buyest them mightest war a good warfare. Evidently, there was some information in those prophecies that helped Timothy win a battle. He was to use that knowledge within those prophecies properly to win some battles. You know, we used to hear taught, you don't hear taught much, much of anything, that if God ever pulls you out of a crowd and gives you a word of knowledge, gives you, gives you a word from the Lord, usually that meant all hell's fixing to break loose and you need something more than just the normal in order to survive it. It's almost, it was there for quite some, do you remember those days? It's almost some, no, don't call me out. No, 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 no. No, that means that all difficulties, there's going to be a, the heightened of difficulty. You know, it's going to increase, increase, increase. No, don't call me out. No, 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 don't call me out. Are you listening to me? You don't hear teaching like that anymore, but there's some truth to it. Sometimes God understands you need a supernatural word to get you through what you're presently going to go through. I never will forget as long as I live. 1979, the Lord had been talking to me about uh, leaving Brother Hagen as a crusade director. And, and um, I knew that when we left him, we were going to have to leave Tulsa. And um, that was going to be a problem. Because my wife's from Tulsa and all her family's there. And she's very close to her family. And I knew that was going to be a problem for her. And I, I kind of bumped up against it, you know, in conversations, talking to her about the next move and what God's going to have us to do. And uh, I saw some, there's some big resistance here. She's not wanting to, mm-mm, leaving Tulsa, mm-mm, no, no, no. So I began to talk to the Lord about it. I said, Lord, you, you're going to have to help me here. I, I, I need you to, 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 to soften her heart, and I need you to get that this next move is going to help. This, we're, we're going to have to leave Tulsa and leave mom and dad and leave her sister and leave. And um, I didn't know, I, there wasn't anything I could do to say to, to, to solve the problem. And as God is my witness, we're sitting in church one day and Buddy Harrison called us out of the, out, out of the, out of the auditorium, out of, out just clear out of nowhere. He said, Doug and Cheryl, come up here. And so when he did, Pat, his wife, uh, Buddy Harrison was Brother Hagen's son-in-law, and Pat is his daughter. And so Pat started speaking in tongues, and Buddy interpreted that thing and nailed my wife to the wall <laughs> and told her in a very kind way, by the Spirit of God, that you're, that you're fixing to move, and it'll be a good thing, and God's care would be with us, and I, I don't remember all that was involved in it. But that word from the Lord changed her because there was some difficulty there in Lindale, Texas. I, we moved to a town of 1,500 people. We're used to living in Tulsa. Hundreds of thousands of people at that time. Now we're going to 1,500 member, member, member town? Not church, town. <laughs> Are y'all out there? And there were some lonely times there for her. She reminds me of them every once in a while. <laughs> but uh, but that word, that word helped her get through a difficult season, a difficult time. Are you listening to me? These prophecies, apparently, they were given, up, given to Timothy. He was supposed to use them to gain some victory over some difficult times. Go with me, if you will, to Luke 4. Knowledge in its proper use. Supposed to use what you know, what you got. He's supposed to use it properly. You know the story. I'm not going to go into all this. You guys are well taught. Jesus is confronted with Lucifer on the backside of the desert. 
And Lucifer approaches him and said, if you be, verse 3, if you be the son of God, command the stones that it be made bread. Jesus turned right around and used the knowledge that he had properly and resisted that. Are you all out there? Verse 4, it's written, man should not live. And the devil just quickly just zoomed over into another area. And all of a sudden, verse 6, all this power, see all this power? I'll give it to you if you just fall down and worship me. Verse 8, here again, he had some knowledge. Get thee, get thee behind me, for it's written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God. What would have happened if he had been ignorant about these things? He'd have lost that battle, got himself into difficulty. And we know the rest of the story. John chapter 8 and verse 32, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Now go with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 6. Y'all doing okay? Yes. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6. And I want you to note three words in, in this, this passage here of the armor of God. And I want to begin reading with verse 11. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11. There is a war. There is a battle. And we're seeing the results of it within some very close friends and acquaintances of ours. But we've got to be aware of it ourselves if we're going to be able to step into their lives and help restore them from their fallen state. We've got to have some help for them. Got to be able to know what to do. Look at what it says here, Ephesians 6 and verse 11. Wait, I want you to underline two words. Wait till I get there. Circle them, really. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against, underline it, the wiles. Circle that phrase, the wiles. The wiles of the devil. The wiles of the devil. Verse 13. Wait till I get to it. I'll have you circle another phrase. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to underline it or circle it. Withstand in the evil day. The wiles of the devil withstand in the evil day. Y'all doing Okay. You don't really know it, but you're kind of in Rainbow Bible Training College right now, all right? You're, that's where you're at right now. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 16 is the third phrase. And above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the circlet fiery darts. You have the wiles, you have the evil day, you have the fiery darts. So we've got to ask ourselves the question, what are the wiles of the devil? What is the evil day? What are the fiery darts that this armor will bring help to them when they encounter these things? Now, you know as well as I do, Second, I want you to turn here. I wasn't going to turn here. Second Corinthians chapter 2, because you need to see this verse. Second Corinthians chapter 2. We're doing real good in time. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And I want, you've got it underlined, but let's just emphasize it just one more time. Verse 11. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Underline that phrase. Guys, listen to me. Can we really know how the devil is going to attack us? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. For we are not ignorant of his devices. You know, there's a whole, I grew up in the church. I grew up with Assemblies of God. And, and we were taught in the Assemblies, or we were taught by people, by people that love God, that from one generation to the next, the devil attacks you in areas that didn't attack my generation in. That's a lie. You know, I grew up in, like I said, Michigan. And um, I was in Tecumseh, Michigan. If you, if you know anything about Tecumseh compressors, Tecumseh engines, you know, you, you know something about what, what, what my dad's, my dad, he retired from, the, from Tecumseh products. But, but just, just east of us, up in Detroit, 60 miles south, north, northeast of us, is Detroit in Ypsilanti. And in um, Pontiac. Where it was, the, it was the auto capital of the world back in those days, back in the 60s and 70s, auto capital of the world. That's where the Fords and the Chryslers and the, and, and the Pontiacs were all made. And every August, 
they would shut those plants down. And they would shut those plants down for two weeks because they had to retool the entire plant so that when they pressed the buttons to start, the, start all the presses again, that when they pressed, they would, it, would, it would press out the new style that we didn't know was coming. We, everybody looked forward to the August reveal, September reveal of the new cars because it just, you know, we don't know. We don't know what, what the new Mustang is going to look like. We don't know what the GTO is going to look like. And we don't know what the Camaro is going to look like. I'm talking about my generation now. Uh, you know, they don't have cars. I don't care. As much as they want to try to imitate those cars, I'm sorry, our cars. How many of you are with me on that? Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And so the thing about it is, is you just didn't know what it was going to look like. So there was a question there. Some people think that's the devil. That in generation, he shuts down for two, two, two weeks and retools himself. <laughs> to, where, to where he flips the button on and begins to attack humanity again. That he comes at us in a different way. With different weapons. With different, come on. The Bible says we are not ignorant of his devices. Can I put it to you like this, guys? The devil is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The devil never changes. He's a noble foe that always uses the same tactics, and he never changes, ever. And we in the family of God are supposed to be so aware of what he uses against us, that's the devil right there. But we got so many people that don't have a clue as to what the devil's doing that everything's the devil. And you can't do that and be a Christian that's any use at all. Isn't that right? He says, we are not ignorant of his devices. Well, so then what are his devices? I present this for your consideration. I, I want you to go with me, if you will. Uh, where do I go? I got 15 minutes. Isaiah, Heidi told me, you better be out by 8.30 or... Uh, no, she did. She did. She did. She did. <laughs> we'll be out for 8.30. Kids, kids. Where did I tell you all to go? Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14, what are the wiles? What is the evil day? What are the fiery darts that Lucifer uses against us? Let's just go ahead and lay it on the table. They are thoughts, ideas, and suggestions. What are the fiery darts that he throws at you and I? They are thoughts, ideas, and suggestions. Guys, the war that we're talking about is the war within the mind. And when you lose the battle of the mind, depression, low self-esteem, fear, worry, suicide. Come on, guys. And on down through the list. And we've got a lot of individuals today that are losing the battle of the mind. They're trying to resist the devil and every other, but, but, they, but they forget about that there's a responsibility that you and I have concerning our minds that we must take upon ourselves. And that is the responsibility of bringing every thought into captivity, pulling down every stronghold. It is thoughts, ideas, and suggestions. And I present this for your consideration. And how Lucifer came up with this little, 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 little package of tools is he learned from his own fall from heaven. Lucifer is a very smart individual. He learns from his mistakes. And you know as well as I do that if we're going to be smart as adults, you got to learn from your mistakes. And Lucifer learned from his mistakes. And Lucifer looked at how he fell from his place. Lucifer was, the, was the, a third, they were the three top dogs angelic forces, Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer, three top dogs. And every one of them had a third of the angels underneath their command. Every one of them had, they were leaders. But all of a sudden, you're going to see here in Isaiah 14 that Lucifer started thinking in his mind. And he walked out what his mind led him to do. 
and he got kicked out of heaven, he was actually, to, he was actually able to take what he was thinking in his mind and pass it on to the people that worked for him, the third of the angels. This is the reason why I tell pastors all the time. When you have a department head who's kind of gotten sideways and they're thinking and they're, you know, and they're all blowing up the whole thing in their minds, when they, when they, when they decide to leave, you can might as well just look forward to it. All the volunteers in that department are going to leave also. Because you know as well as I do that when you have a department head and they're disgruntled, they're going, yeah, 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 yeah. And they're, and, they're, and, they're, and they're acting like a friend. Well, look at that. Here it is again. The, those idiots up there, do they really know what they're doing? And those comments undermine and undermine and undermine because they're passing on their thoughts about that leadership to their volunteers who may not even see what they see, but they, but they love and interact with the department head. And so then all of a sudden, then, then when the department head leaves, then they all leave. That's what happened to Lucifer and the third of his angels. Those third of angels are now bounded by chains into darkness because they rebelled with, with, with Lucifer until, until the day of judgment. But Lucifer fell in his mind first. Then it went into his words with his angelic forces. Then it went into his actions Lucifer was kicked out of heaven. Look at what it says here. Isaiah, thoughts, ideas, and suggestions. Why? When, when, when Paul told the Ephesian leaders, feed the flock of God. Teach them ahead of time so that when they hear the false doctrine, they can, they can identify it as such and deal with it properly because if they get to thinking about it and embracing the thoughts of the false doctrine, they're, gonna, they're, not gonna, they're not gonna excel in, in the family of God. We got a world out here that is shoving down a whole lot of stuff down our throats. And they're actually using our words, our words, twisting the definitions of those words. Come on. Twisting the definitions. You know as well as I do, whoever controls the meaning of a word controls the conversation. We have got to realize there's a lot of stuff that's contrary to the word of God that's, that's, that's coming at us. And we've got to be able to take the word of God, identify those thoughts, and deal with those thoughts effectively. I'm still trying to drive home this point that Lucifer's whole Weaponry is thoughts, ideas, and suggestions. There's never been a divorce that's ever occurred without somebody in that marriage thinking on things that they ought not be thinking about. Not one. There's never been an unwanted child born into this world without somebody thinking about stuff they shouldn't have been thinking about. And then acting it out, and you know the rest of the story. Isaiah chapter 14, we, we got to go. Mm. Isaiah 14, verse 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nation? This is how it was done. For thou hast said, underline it, in thine heart. Underline that phrase. In their thought life. Guys, our demise starts with the thought life inwardly and works its way outwardly. Thought always precedes action. No matter what we do, you never once have ever found yourself in Walmart pushing, what in the world am I doing here? <laughs> because before you'll ever end up in Walmart, you have to first think about Going to Walmart. You're never going to find yourself up on a ladder doing painting. What in the world? What in the world am I doing here? You're going to think about painting that house before you start painting that house. Isn't that right? Some of you wives may need to remind your husband to think a little bit more about some of those things. 
<laughs> and it's always the wives. I cannot tell you the amount of projects that my wife has got me, got thinking about that I'm going to, she went out and bought paint for a bedroom. I didn't even know we were going to paint. <laughs> so when I get home, glory to God, I need to get her a job, do something. It's, wear, it's wearing me out. How many of your husbands got a little compassion for me here? Yes, some of you are not even willing to raise your hand. Because you know, you know it'd be a rough day going home, you know. <clears throat> For thou hast said in thy heart, I will exalt. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my, I will sit upon the mount. I will ascend. He did it with a thought life. He did it with a thought. Isn't it true? Come on, guys. We're going to have to go. Let's just, let's, just rant, let's just wind this thing up. Did he not come? Because here again, he learned from how he fell. It was the, listen guys, this is a precedent. I talk about this a lot in class. It's a precedent setting event. It is the first time anyone ever fell from their place with God. Precedent. It's a record of an act that acts as a guide for future acts of a similar kind. What is a precedent? It's a record of an act that acts as a guy. There, there are things that, that the court systems have. We do not want them judging for that. Why? It sets precedent. Because if you, if you judge this to be so and, and allow this, then, then, then uh, uh, you got to let everybody else do it. It sets precedent. Lucifer's fall from his place with God set a precedent. It's a record of an act that acts as a guide for future acts of a similar kind. How Lucifer fell is how Adam and Eve fell. <laughs> how Adam and Eve fell is how fell Judas. How Judas fell is how fell Ananias and Sapphira. Come on, guys. It was all in the thought life. Here's the thought. I'm not, here again, I, I'm, I'm going to just blow it out the wall and let's just forget about it for tonight. When Lucifer approached Adam and Eve, he did not go, <laughs> Hope you don't have a heart problem. I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean to, didn't mean to scare you. <laughs> Lucifer did not approach Adam and Eve with fear. You can't find any, any fear anywhere near that whole deal. You know, what, you know what the feeling is? It's a feeling like a friend's come to him, to them, and talking about stuff that they don't know nothing about and that they're missing out. Lucifer, Lucifer comes with logic. He comes with things that are yeah, yeah, you'll be better off. You'll be as gods. Lucifer offered a little suggestion. Hath God said? Hath God said? Oh, we should not do blah, blah, blah. You shall not surely die. The thought, idea, and suggestion. Say that with me. Thought, idea, suggestion. And when Lucifer's thoughts come your way, they always question two things. What God has said and what God will do. Hath God said? You shall not surely die. That's Lucifer. He's getting you to question with a thought, with an idea, and with a suggestion, listen to me, and Adam and Eve followed Lucifer out of the Garden of Eden. How many of you know the Bible says he's a liar? There's no truth in him. So then, so then what's happened is we got to go, so what's happened is this, in the church world, we've gotten so taken up in the word of faith camp about our words. 
you had better watch the confession of Jeremiah. You remember the confession cops that we used to have back in the 60s and 70s? Well, you better not say that. Well, you better not say that. You're going to have what you say. We got so many people watching, watching the door of their mouth. You got another camp that watches the door of conduct. They think that's where Lucifer's getting into their lives through. But what they don't realize is, is there, he's not coming through the door of their mouth. He's not coming through the door of their conduct. He's coming through the door of their mind. And we're not, we're not, we're not guarding our minds as well as we're guarding our tongues. The mind has to be dealt with. The mind has to be monitored. You can't just let it just run wild. Thought always precedes action. Are you all out there? And so what we're going to do tomorrow is we're going to talk about maintaining our thought life. But I had to, I had to, I had to settle the issue. How does Lucifer approach humanity? What does he use to steal from us with thoughts, ideas, and suggestions? He doesn't do it with force. I'm sorry, but I can't find fear anywhere where the devil is found in the Bible. <sighs> Excuse me for living. I find more fear when an angel you're not. Ooh, didn't mean to scare you. When Jesus, when Jesus, when Jesus had risen, the disciples were in a, in a room. He came through the wall. Oh, well, fear not. Fear not. <laughs> Sorry, I forgot. You guys use doors. I forgot. I forgot all about this. <laughs> There's more fear when God shows up and Angel than there is when the devil shows up. The devil doesn't come. Listen, guys, his fiery darts don't look fiery. When they're approaching you, they look logical, beneficial. Come on, guys. And we have to know how to identify them and what to do when they come. That's what we're going to be talking about tomorrow. Father, we just thank you for your goodness. A lot said. A lot of ground covered. Hopefully, Father, the heart of the message, Father, planted within each one of us to this room. To help us to realize there is a battle, there is a fight, and it is in the thoughts, suggestions, and idea arena. We have an enemy, and he's out to kill, steal, and destroy. Thank you, Father, that you'll help us to recognize his activities in our life. and identify the lies that we have embraced that need to be dealt with. Taking upon ourselves the responsibility of a mature person. Not allowing our thoughts to just think any way and whatever they want to think on. Thank you, Lord. Jesus' name. How many of you know, guys, if we're going to grow in Christ, you got to say no to some thoughts, you got to say no to some words, and you got to say no to some actions. An adult has to say no. I'm sorry. I found this to be true that the older I get, the severer the consequences of things that I should have said no to that I allow. Now, I've never been one to cuss. I'll be very honest with you about it. I've always grown up in the church and my mouth has been in control for all of my life. I really have never cussed. I've never flipped somebody off. I've never, I never have. I'm sorry, but I never have. And, uh, but you realize that you use a cuss word. I'm, I'm 69, I'll be 70 in October. You, you realize that when you use a cuss word as a 70-year-old, it carries a lot more weight behind it than when you used it as a 24-year-old. Relationships are a lot more affected by it. Are you all out there? 
The consequences of age are much greater than the consequences of youth. You make a financial mistake in your 70s. You make that same mistake as a 24-year-old, and it won't cost you as much. Are you all out there? You listening to me? And I found, mm, boy, to do this, I found, I found that the struggles I've always dealt, I'm just going to talk about it just for a second, I've always dealt with low self-esteem. I've always dealt with that. For a long time, I thought I had it pretty well under control, but I found in my elderly ages, my age coming up here, uh, coming to seven, I found that, I'm, that this thing's starting to resurface again. How many of you remember the scripture that talks about the sins that so easily beset us? Those are stuff that we used to mess with in the past. And they're creeping back in now in the, the latter years. If you're not real careful, you won't take upon yourself the same posture of resistance. And they get yourself into difficulty. You're important to your grandbabies. You're important. I never will forget, had this guy. He was a big dog in our circles. Still is. But he never comes around. Oh, you know, there's nothing much you all can give me. And, and finally, I said to him, I agree with you. There's not really much I can give you. You got your own passion. You got your own vision. You got your own momentum. But we need you. We need you. We need your voice. Are you all out there? thing about it is, is simply this, this issue of maintenance management. I'm talking a lot to my students, and I'm hammering the potty mouth. I'm tired of Christians with potty mouths. If you and blah, blah, blah. I'm tired of it up to here, and I'm hammering it every time I can hammer it. No more potty mouths. It's over with. Words used to edification and comfort. But here again, that old thought life, that old thought life gets you. It's so easily, easily forgotten that we do have to manage some things in our life. You know, Ikea, you all, do you all even know what Ikea is, Don? I'm <laughs> so far out in the boondocks, I don't, I don't have any. There's a store in the southern part of the country called Ikea. And anything you buy from them, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta assemble it. And there's a thousand bolts and a thousand nuts and a thousand washers and a thousand wrenches and a thousand this, a thousand that. How many of you know with Christianity in your mind, there's some assembly required. There's some work you got to do on this old mind. It's not fun. Boy, when you get it all assembled, it'll be well, well serving to you. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen today. If you would like more information about Faith Family Church, including service times and location, visit faithfamilybillings.com.